people in this room will not like to hear this, but when we're negotiating with the EU, we are worth nothing to them. Well, we've got a free trade deal with the EU worth nearly $2 billion. Kiwi fruit, wine, onions, manuka, honey, manufactured goods, almost all fish and seafood will step into a brave new world of free trading. It's not quite free trade for all, and it's not quite a done deal. But if we're worth nothing to the 27 countries of 500 million people of the EU, how did we get there? I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today, the detail looks at what happened behind the scenes. And really, why did our feta get picked on? Feta's out. Yeah, in nine years' time. So we've got nine years to come up with a new identity and you know, show that our feta's better. A couple of days ago, our top trade negotiator, Vangelis Vitalis, stood in front of several hundred farmers and other industry leaders who were still fuming about the deal and told them they weren't going to get anything better. Uh, and I share the frustration. I do share the frustration and the annoyance at where we had to land with Europe on beef and in dairy. But let's also be honest about the fact that our current levels of access are negligible to nil. He goes on to say that negotiations were tough. I think the EU was shameful uh, in what they did. But in the end, I was confronted with a situation where we're a five million economy, we were saying no to the two really big things that the EU expected us to do. I was confronted with that pretty brutal reality, which is you're worth nothing to us. We already have access to your market. We don't need you. Remember, this deal took four years of negotiation and there were several years before that spent getting the EU to take the talk seriously. It has to be translated into the 23 languages of the EU with hopes it will be ratified and enforced by 2023. So let's find out just what goes into these deals. Charles Finney has been at the trade negotiating table many a time. I can see why the farmer groups in New Zealand are upset because it could mean that we have signalled to the rest of the world, well, actually, yes, yes, we, we, we are prepared to be pragmatic and they will not be getting the great outcomes that they have got with the UK, with, uh, with uh, China, with Taiwan. What actually happens... In the negotiating room, um, before you know, before an agreement is reached, what, you know, is there a whole team of people working on it full time? Oh, look, they've got huge. Um, when I first was in this game, and we were we were negotiating very major negotiations with Australia in the uh, sort of eighty eight period, we would have had a team of maybe ten New Zealand officials. Now you've, you've literally got close to hundreds of officials being involved and teams dedicated to specific issues as well. So I think there is a real industry around free trade agreements and that's because they've become much more complex and their reach is far, far greater than they used to be. How do you actually get through that initial process? Well, I think in the first first phase, the chief negotiators get together to determine the scope of the negotiation and the timetable. This negotiation actually has been impacted quite significantly by COVID. But, but normally, if there is no global pandemic, there would be 
a large number of face-to-face meetings, both in plenary with everyone in, in the room that's involved in negotiation, and then there'll be a lot of specialist negotiating groups meeting on, on a regular and quite intensive way. So many hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours, of negotiation would have occurred. Um, it's fair to say there wasn't much sleep in, in our team as we tried to get this through. I am confident that we, we left no stone unturned. And what's it like in those meetings? I mean, do they get tense? Do people get shouty? On most issues, no. But I think as you get to the end of the negotiation and you strike difficult issues, then there will be real tension in the room. I've been in negotiations where it's been necessary to basically walk away and say, look, sorry, we cannot proceed on this basis. Um, have a think about your position and we'll come back to you. Even at the very end of a negotiation with a very friendly and straightforward partner, Singapore, things were very tense towards the end. And there will always be some very difficult uh, issues for both sides. And sometimes they cannot even be resolved at officials level. So, so in most cases, In most negotiations, uh, the tough negotiations are done at officials level. There will be some issues that may be resolved at trade ministerial level. There are very rarely negotiations which see substantive negotiation at prime ministerial level, uh, but they do happen. The trick is to make sure that there aren't too many issues (laughs) that have to be decided at prime ministerial or head of government level. I do want to say that the Prime Minister herself was directly involved in the last negotiations and obviously Minister O'Connor was there for the whole week. And I think that was the case in, in this negotiation. As far as I can tell, there was still the possibility that we might have said, sorry, not good enough and, um, and we need more time. Negotiations went down to the wire. A deal that was almost left on the table. One of the things that the Prime Minister has said when this was announced was at the end we had the odd little issues. We're talking hours before that announcement. Uh, <laughs> no, five minutes. I can say that even right at the very end uh, uh, we had the odd little uh, uh, issue here and there. So there were some niggly areas. What would they be? Well, obviously they were over in terms of uh, the EU import regime, uh, the proposed quota levels and the proposed tariff rates for beef, sheep meat and, and some dairy products. European market access for New Zealand farmers had been a major sticking point during talks as some EU members had been reluctant to open up market access in order to protect their own domestic industries. And on the New Zealand side, how extensive the list of um, geographic indicators is going to be. Uh, These are the sort of um, place names that can or cannot be used in in product names. That's going to be painful for our artisanal cheese producers. We won't be able to use feta anymore, for example. Those are all issues that that, um, were not resolved until the very end of that negotiation. And the Prime Minister was under intense pressure. She wasn't just being pressured from New Zealand, but a very large delegation of agriculture leaders uh, travelled to Brussels to, to make sure they were on the spot and they were lobbying New Zealand officials and ministers and the Prime Minister right up to the end. And what, what, what does that lobbying look like? I mean, you know, are they all sitting outside this meeting room waiting to hear what, what's on offer and then what, she comes out or her, you know, her assistant comes out and says this is what we're being offered, 
take it or leave it? Or how, how does that part of it work? Well, I don't think that last bit did happen. Mm. Uh, I think that there was a meeting. The Prime Minister was had been well briefed by her minister and her officials um, on, on where things sat, and she decided to settle the agreement at that, that point in time. But prior to that, um, the officials were in, uh, indeed briefing, and Minister um, O'Connor was briefing the agriculture leaders. Uh, I'm not sure they were sitting in the room outside, but they were in Brussels and in very regular contact with the embassy, with the officials and, and with the minister. And uh, they were trying to follow uh, the negotiation as closely as they could. As lobbyists, they were getting information from the New Zealand side and from their sources in the EU as well. Because the reports say that uh, the Prime Minister was actually doing a lot of individual lobbying with EU leaders. Is that more about relationships or is it like saying to, for example, Spain's Prime Minister, you know, we'll let your young people come to New Zealand for a longer period to work? To expand the working holiday visa programme, increasing the number of New Zealanders and Spaniards who can travel and work in each country from 200 to 2,000. If you support us on allowing more meat and dairy into the EU... Yeah, I think that's basically what it was like. I think there was a focus, obviously, on those EU jurisdictions that had the greatest concern about New Zealand's competitiveness in uh, in meat and dairy. France has pushed back on sensitive areas like agricultural market access during talks. Ms Ardern also met with its president, Emmanuel Macron, and shared this message. If you can't sign up to an agreement with New Zealand, then who can you? There was a very important meeting with the um, Prime Minister from the Netherlands and obviously France as a very major EU member and also a very um, important agricultural producer with with farmers who have become militant from time to time in history, um, plays a pivotal role as well. The Prime Minister clearly has a very good relationship with Macron, who who had just been re-elected. Indeed, you know, the, the, the importance of the member states was demonstrated by the fact that essentially, you know, things did happen. It didn't come to a complete standstill. But, but this negotiation was delayed by the French elections. No Mm. one wanted to try and force an outcome while that was still in play. The deal is a whopper tariff stopper. 97% of our existing trade will be without tariffs within seven years, 91% from day one. Kiwi fruit, wine, onions, manuka honey, manufactured goods, almost all fish and seafood will step into a brave new world of free trading. As it stands... Yeah, I can't see anything in this outcome that actually doesn't fall within EU jurisdiction. That means that the European Parliament is the ratifying body. It won't have to go to individual member states. But those individual members, they, they, they are crucial in terms of determining that mandate for the negotiation. And if the French or the Dutch had been very opposed to this outcome, we wouldn't have got it. A lot's been said about New Zealand FETAC. Where we had to make a concession, and speaking as someone of Greek origin, this was pretty painful... I must say the Greek community in Wellington is not a very forgiving one. Um, so we had to agree that, yes, we would give up the right to use the term feta. We have, however, negotiated a nine-year transition. By the way, that's the highest transition that anyone has secured. Why these ones? Why not brie or camembert? Well, I think the reason was that the yeah, the EU, you would have probably seen this, there was quite an extensive list which did include brie and camembert. 
and uh, and parmesan and other things but because the outcome that we got was not what we were wanting for dairy and beef and sheep meat that has meant that the EU has had to compromise and reduce the size of the list. So well, there's a bit of horse trading at the end of these negotiations, and this this is the outcome yeah. that has resulted. The interesting thing about the deal on red meat and dairy, here in New Zealand, those in the industry are saying that they're extremely disappointed and it was a missed opportunity. But on the EU side, the main farming association is also unhappy about it. Well, as Damien O'Connor said, no one is happy with the deal, so maybe it's quite a good deal. It's probably fair to say that that no one likes it, so we must have had it about right. A sprinkling of laughs for what was admittedly a slip of the tongue. Yeah. I, I don't think you said that twice. Um, but, there, <laughs> is but, that right? but, but, but there is a there is a bit of theatre around these um, outcomes, and I would have been very surprised if the EU negotiators or lobbyists from the agriculture sector would would be in public expressing strong support for this outcome. But actually, in terms of their interests, I think they're probably pretty content, and there possibly were a few champagne corks popped outside of the public arena by those groups because it is nowhere near what New Zealand was wanting. It is by no means a done deal, and if you look at the reaction of both the dairy industry and the federated farmers' equivalents in Europe, you can see that they're starting to muster their forces. <laughs> Over the weekend, we heard, um, you know, as I was leaving, that they'd already had a quote-unquote crisis meeting in the Parliament between some of the groups, the left and the Greens, about how they were going to oppose this deal uh, with New Zealand. So this is going to be challenging. This is going to take a lot of political effort. Um, And there's a huge, um, how can I put it, it's not quite a campaign, but there's going to be a huge diplomatic process to, to push this across the line. So we're definitely by no means done. In an ideal world, you wouldn't actually have to have these FTAs because everybody would just not put up barriers in the first place mm. but you know they have crept up over the years and it's it's a matter of trying to dismantle them a bit. Catherine Beard is the Director of Advocacy at Business New Zealand. The geographical indicators we knew was always going to be tricky because the European Union doesn't do free trade deals without protecting their geographical indicators for things like FETA uh, but the original list of geographical indicators that they wanted protected was running into the thousands. Is that right? So I think, yeah, it was it was a very big list at the start. So, um, and I think that the stance the dairy industry took on that was, well, if we're giving something up, we need to get good access in return to make it worthwhile. So that was the tricky thing. They were very concerned they were going to lose the ability to use some of those uh, cheese names um, and not get much market access in return. Right. So the feta and the port, that's the trade-off. Yeah. So, uh, but it could have been worse. And I know, so for Fonterra, uh, mozzarella is quite an important uh, brand to be able to use because they have developed some really great IP around how to make mozzarella much more quickly than a traditional method would allow. But now, that's been really successful uh, food export for them. The challenging thing for New Zealand with 5 million consumers and hardly any tariff barriers is we don't actually have a lot to give the other side. 
you know, I think all credit to our negotiators who have managed over the years to do some really high quality free trade deals. And, you know, they've been very strategic about that. And sometimes there've been geopolitical reasons for countries to do deals with New Zealand and China's a good example of that. Probably the UK is a good example of that because they had to prove that they could do free trade deals. New Zealand's kind of an easy market to do a deal with, but also then we would support them for their entry into the CPTPP. You know, there's a bit of you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. But if you don't actually have any of those wider incentives, then our negotiators don't go with a lot of bargaining coin. And of course, the difficulty with the EU is is the multitude of countries in there. And then the other difficulty for New Zealand is always that agriculture is a very sensitive area and that a lot of Europe, you know, they're very protectionist about their agricultural sectors. And a lot of them actually still um, are very into subsidising their agricultural output. So, you know, their willingness to really be free traders and have an open economy when it comes to food is is a bit limiting and I think that's why we you know we looked at the deal and said there's winners and losers. So what happens next Catherine? I mean I know it needs to be ratified but in terms of the next deal working on the next deal is that this is I get the impression that this is kind of a game changer in a way because of the concessions made on on red meat and uh, dairy, but also the fact that, you know, it's a different world that these negotiations are going on and it's much more protectionist because of the war, because of COVID. A lot has changed. Yeah, no, that's a really good question as to what's next. Um, My understanding is that there is a deal that could be revived with the UAE, United Arab Emirates, That could possibly be the next one. I think New Zealand exporters are looking across the ditch at Australia and thinking that they've made more progress with India than New Zealand has and that maybe we need to look at our relationship with India and put more effort into building it Um, instead of just trying to do a, you know, a normal approach with a free trade agreement because, you know, that is a massive massive market so that'll be the next china probably uh, but you know they like china are trying to bring a lot of people out of poverty so you know they're very keen on on protecting their local um, businesses and trying to do things locally which makes a, a traditional free trade agreement quite a, a difficult prospect but i think new zealand exporters are looking at what australia's done and now they've really put a lot of effort into building that relationship over quite a number of years mm. um, and actually then looking at not how do you do a, a free trade agreement with India, but how do you find projects to work on together. Can you give me an example? Say if they wanted to modernise their agricultural sector, you know, have we got some agri-tech that could work in that market? You start sort of working on things that are kind of win-wins. Mm you know, what helps India as well as our exporters. So I think that kind of approach is possibly a better way to go. On the New Zealand side, I think that this is actually really meaningful. It is a departure from our 
previous policy positions and um, goodness knows um, where it is going to to lead. Yeah, looking at it from a positive perspective, it might mean that, say, India or Colombia um, uh, and maybe even the US in due course when they can get around to contemplating the possibility of future free trade agreements will be less frightened of New Zealand as a negotiating partner because we have demonstrated a willingness to be pragmatic uh, in terms of the outcome for dairy and meat. We've never done that before uh, mm. to this extent. And I can see why the farmer groups in New Zealand are upset because it could mean that we have signalled to the rest of the world, well, actually, yes, yes, we, we, we are prepared to be pragmatic and they will not be getting the great outcomes that they have got with the UK, with, uh, with uh, China, with Taiwan. But um, I am a little bit concerned about the uh, UK situation. Um, you know, obviously we've got chaos in the Conservative Party mm-hmm. uh, right now and, and um, we haven't got our free trade agreement, or Australia hasn't got theirs either, uh, ratified yet by the uh, UK Parliament. So um, I'm, I'm just a bit worried about all that. And there are still plenty of farmers in the UK who were pretty disappointed by the fact that their government was prepared to comp- agree to complete free trade with New Zealand. You know, I couldn't believe it when I woke up and, and read that deal. It's just absolutely fantastic uh, from our perspective. Uh, so I suspect there'll be attempts to relitigate in the UK. Um, if there's a change of, of government. Not even if there's a change of government. It could be a change of leader and, and it, it could just be a numbers thing. Yeah, I'm not saying they're going to be successful. I'd be mm. surprised if they are successful, but it could lead to some delays. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the sooner we can get that agreement in play, the better. Talking about India, Giles Beckford was saying this week that we're whistling in the wind on that one in terms of getting a free trade deal with India because India is the biggest dairy producer in the world. New Zealand is the biggest exporter, but you know India has very protectionist uh, policies. So can we do a trade deal without dairy? No, but I, as we've just signalled to the EU, we, we, we um, are prepared now to do... Uh, trade deals with uh, with quota controls and continuing tariff protection. Uh, it's interesting. Australia is making progress with with India in a way that we have not been able to achieve. I think that it's actually a very very complicated uh, negotiation, which is as much about political relationships as as um, issues such as dairy. Uh, we're really going to, if we want this. Uh, outcome with India uh, in due course we're going to really have to up our game in terms of political contact uh, prime ministerial contact ministerial contact um, MFAT's going to have to do even more there and we're going to have to look at our immigration policy settings because clearly the Indians um, uh, see a bit of discrimination against uh, their people occurring in this market uh, in a way they haven't seen that with Australia In a world where things are getting darker and darker for trade and for trade agreements and for trade policy, getting that coverage, getting the rules in place is, in my view, a very, very important element that we need to be uh, thinking about. I do share the frustrations in this room uh, about the outcomes that we were able to secure in beef and dairy, but I nevertheless think that on balance this deal is worth doing and has been done. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman and produced by Sarah Robson. Our associate producer is Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Charles Finney and Catherine Beard. Kakite. Kakite.